Welcome to another episode of Columbine and them and you and me and everybody. Today, we'll resume the story of Crystal Woodman Miller. And what do you think we can learn from Eric and Dylan's story? Yeah, you know, from Dylan and Eric, I think that we've learned a lot of things we still don't know. And I think that that's what's hard is because we just want the one answer so we can just fix it, right? And I believe that this problem is a multifaceted problem, that there isn't just one solution, but rather many. And it's going to take all hands on deck and it's going to take a long time because it took us a long time to get here. Within regards to Dylan and Eric or to people like them who are shooters and mass murderers, you know, I do feel like we definitely are seeing it, but there continues to need to be a shift in our mental health. Both here in America and around the world, we just do not have a good system in place for people who are mentally ill in any way. I feel like what we need more of is just a better structure for mental health. For people who are struggling with mental health, that there needs to be that element of prevention, that people need to understand that they have a place to go when they're going through difficult things or they're struggling with thoughts or various things, that they need to know that that doesn't make them bad or broken or wrong. It just means that there is something that needs to be addressed in their lives. And I feel like because there was such a stigma around mental health for so long, that that really, I think, was a detriment to our society and to our world. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to have difficult things. I tell my kids that all the time. In fact, I say anger is not bad. Fear is not bad. Sadness is not bad. Those are emotions. Those are facts. Those are facts that your body is saying, hey, I'm scared. Hey, I'm angry. When it becomes a problem is when you respond out of those things and out of those places. And so I think it comes from a very early age, teaching children, just kind of understanding more about emotions and learning how to walk through those and learning how to breathe and all those little tools because children can use those too. And then also just as a societal, like there's this systemic problem of just mental health. And so I want people to understand this is a good thing. This is a service just as you go to get your teeth cleaned, you know, from the dentist or just when you go to get a checkup from the doctor, you're going to a counselor just to kind of fine tune some things and to have a mental checkup a little bit. This is a good thing. And so I think we're moving in that direction. We see a lot of positive momentum in that direction, but I still think we have a long way to go. And I think a lot of times too, media or rather even Hollywood has portrayed counseling in a poor light. You sit on this couch and you've got this, you know, it has changed. It's so different. Counseling is so vastly different from what has been portrayed. Yes, there's still talk therapy and that exists. But there's a variety of modalities that are now used to help people, and especially when there's areas where people feel stuck in depression or in anxiety or, you know, in some of these things. We use body movement therapy. We use adventure therapy. We use equine therapy. We use psychodrama therapy. We use EMDR and brain spotting and brain scanning. And, you know, there's 
so many new technologies and beautiful things and people more and more are entering the mental health field and specifically the trauma field that it's not a hopeless cause. I think people think, oh, well, I'm broken. This is how I am. I'm just going to manage this for the rest of my life. That's not the case. And so I wish that twofold, I wish that the shooters at Columbine would have understood that there was help out there, that they didn't have to deal with it on their own. Number two, that just that their story matters too. I said that earlier, I mentioned that earlier, and I think people get lost in feeling like, I don't matter. This world doesn't need me. I'm going to take people with me. I'm angry anyway. I'm going to give back. There's revenge. There's all these things. But just at an early age, understanding your story matters. Your pain matters. You are seen. You are heard. You are valued. You are loved. And I think that is a really important factor. But a lot of times we just want to put a Band-Aid over and say, well, no more guns, no more bad movies, no more, you know, we're kind of treating the symptoms as opposed to treating the root. And I think we need to get to the root. And by getting to the root, we get to people's hearts, we get to their minds, we help shape and influence those in beautiful ways. And I'm not saying all this is unavoided. There is mental health, there is sickness in the world, there is evil in the world, and evil with a gun in their hand is a dangerous combination. But I'm saying I do feel like this problem is more holistic than what we actually tend to view it as. And so can we talk a bit about your journey? I feel like this is my favorite part of the interview. <laughs> I feel like this is finally where I get to talk about the good and the hope. This is where I find a lot of joy and a lot of life is getting to be an advocate for hope. I like using that term because there's advocates for everything, but I certainly feel like in our day and age, what is needed now more than anything, and that is hope. We need hope in the midst of, you know, the pandemic and the really difficult several years that we've all experienced as a world. We need hope when we look around at the war, the, the wars that are raging around us and the rumors of wars. We need hope when we look at all of the division between people and political groups, because I think so often we actually are probably closer on issues than we think. We just spend too much time yelling at each other. We need hope in the way that we treat one another and the way that we look at different races and different people groups. We need hope in all of the violence that's raging around the world, whether it's mass shootings or stabbings on a train. We need hope in our marketplaces, in our economy. We need hope in our families. We need hope in our education systems. Like people are desperate and they are hungry for hope. And so that is the message that I always try to make clear when I go anywhere is that there is always hope. If you are still breathing and you have breath in your lungs, there's still hope. Regardless of your story, regardless of your past, there is always hope and you are not alone. And so that's always my resounding message. And so, yes, I'm an advocate for hope because I just realized that so many people that gave me the gift of hope and and I believe that I get to extend that now to others and that can take on 
a great many different forms. Hope can look like sitting with someone, you know, in, in the midst of their grief and their sorrow and just listening and being present. You know, hope can look like bringing a meal to a worn out mom. You know, hope can look like meeting the needs of the homeless. Hope can look like helping someone through whatever they're struggling with. Hope is needed in all realms of our lives. And so that is why that's become so important to me to share that message, especially with other survivors. Because I know firsthand how hopeless it can feel, how it can feel as if life is over and that what's the point of going on and laying in your bed, just weeping endless tears. It's important to understand that there is hope on the other side of that because it's really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel sometimes. And you need someone to come alongside of you and to wrap their arm around you and to say, I got you. I got you and you're not alone. So that's kind of whether I've been a speaker, an author, you know, working for various organizations, hope has always been at the forefront. And I don't even know how it happened, but somehow people just started calling me and reaching out, I guess, because really at the time I was probably among, I could count on one hand, maybe five of us who were out sharing about our experience, sharing that message of hope. And now that's changed. There's a lot more survivors who are out there speaking and doing a lot of advocacy work, but there weren't many of us at the very beginning. And so people would call and they would they would say, we don't know how to navigate this. Will you come? Will you speak a message of hope to our community? And so I felt super honored. It was hard. It's It continues to be hard to walk into a community devastated by tragedy, but I feel it's a great honor to go and to wrap my arms around that community, both verbally and proverbially, even to go and walk side by side with them and to support a community. And so it happened, Virginia Tech. I remember I was asked to come and speak near the campus not long after that happened in Newtown and Parkland. And I can't even remember all of them, but I was invited to come to these communities and share kind of whatever I knew, whatever would help support them after their trauma and their tragedy. And so it kind of started taking shape of becoming not just a message of prevention, but rather how can we support these communities who've been through it to also becoming a message of, okay, well, now we need to start looking back at prevention again. And that's, you know, how can we do that? How can we see a shift? For me, my focus is the area of mental health. There's plenty of other people doing the political things and, you know, doing other work of advocacy. But for me, my shift has become both mental health as well as also faith-based. Because in my opinion, I feel like that was the biggest factor. And that that to me, you've got to have something that's bigger than yourself to believe in there has to be a higher power. And so I come just sharing that. Like we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't fix ourselves. We can't, there's things that we need people to walk with us. And we also need to believe in something bigger than ourselves. So those are kind of the twofold message of, you know, mental health and then continuing that message of hope as well. Thank you so much, Crystal. I've seen that you're involved in a program called Triumph Over Tragedy. Austin was a huge inspiration for this program. I remember when Austin, you know, when his life was tragically cut short from his addiction, I was so sad. I felt like he was another victim of Columbine. He worked so hard to battle that addiction and he found a lot of, you know, success in certain areas and 
Oh, it just, it broke my heart. And so I remember reaching out to somebody he was dating at the time and said, we've got to do something. This has got to stop. This madness has got to stop, not just the violence, the events themselves, but the aftermath and all of the pain and all, like there are very few resources available. There are no programs. Triumph Over Tragedy is actually the first of its kind. And it's the only of its kind. It's a six-day therapeutic healing retreat where survivors of mass shootings can come and they can receive the best-in-class trauma therapy for those six days. It's a very intensive program, about one year's worth of counseling in six days. And it's all done in the context of community because we believe that healing takes place within community, that we cannot do it alone. We were made for one another so it's all group therapy sessions. We do not use talk therapy because we found for this particular trauma for mass shootings, the talk therapy is not productive. It is not effective. And so we use body movement therapy through yoga, through grounding, through meditation, through Pilates. We do have horses on our property. And so, you know, horses are beautiful healing creatures. We also do a lot of psychodrama therapy where you're role playing and you're putting yourself in different roles and you're saying things to somebody who hurt you or to a family member or to a shooter that you've never been able to say and you get to kind of act that out. We do a lot of art therapy and kind of working through our past because you really can't work through your current trauma unless you work through the trauma of your past. Because again, trauma compounds upon one another. So we use a variety of different techniques and different modalities. In those six days, it's unbelievable the amount of work that we have seen people. They come in as one person and they leave a completely different person. So we created this program in 2020. So in 2019 is when Austin passed in May. And we worked tirelessly for the rest of 2019 to create this program together with OnSite. Now, OnSite is a very reputable, well-known organization who works in the trauma healing space. I was in that first program in March of 2020 when the world shut down. We lost a lot of that momentum, but it's beautiful. And we are seeing a lot of lives changed and transformed. And it's one of the jobs that I would say I'm most proud of in life is just being able to help form this program and to make this program what it is and to step into this space with tangible tools. Sure, I would go to communities and I would speak and I would use words, but this feels like I'm giving the gift of tangible healing. And that feels very purposeful. So we continue, we're continuing to do Triumph Over Tragedy. Um, since then, I've written two children's books as well. And they're called a kid's book about shootings and then a kid's book about surviving. And the purpose behind those books and my goal as a communicator, as a speaker, as an author is to create resources such as Triumph Over Tragedy and such as these books, because they lack. There is nothing that exists out there today. And so these books really were designed for parents and for educators to start a really difficult conversation with kids about a really scary topic. Because I think so often we avoid talking about these things and they get so big in kids' minds is we're saying, okay, this is something that happens. This is reality. You get to be a kid. You don't have to spend all your time being afraid and worrying that something like this is going to happen. Let us adults have the plan and we'll inform you of it. We'll practice it. But we want you guys just to be able to be kids. And it gives them space. It opens up the sacred space for them to ask really difficult questions, you know, and to be able to process that 
frees up their minds so that they can go on and be kids and regain some of that innocence that we've lost, especially here in America, because of the constant fear of being involved in a school shooting. And so the one I wrote was actually in response to the shootings in Uvalde, Texas, because we just thought, okay, these kids need to understand it's normal to have that survivor's guilt. It's normal to have all of these scary dreams and these scary thoughts. It's normal to feel all of these emotions with a lot of intensity or to feel no emotions at all. It's normal to act out of those emotions, but here's some more productive ways that you can maybe work through those emotions. Here's how you can find the support you need. Kind of also putting the ball in kids' courts and empowering them to recognize you have a voice too and you can make change in this area. And so that's just my goal is to continue to be both an advocate, a resource, and a fellow journeyer, a sojourner with people who've gone through difficult things. And really, I don't limit myself to just people who've gone through mass shootings. I walk with people through all sorts of different kinds of trauma because, again, that gift was given to me after Columbine, and I want to give that gift to others in any way that I can as long as I'm alive. It's wonderful. Thank you, Crystal. And were you concerned about making the world a better place before Columbine? I would say before Columbine, I did not think much about anybody else other than myself. <laughs> you know, that's how teenagers are. That's how most people are. As we really, we were very inward focused. And again, that's important. It's good to take care of yourself. But I think we've lost some of the sense of like one anothering and we've lost the sense of having the back of our fellow man. We need to come together and we need to be kind and we need to show love. We need to support one another. We need to sit and listen and stop yelling and stop spouting our opinions on social media. We need to put down our phones and we need to look people in the eyes and learn their stories and learn their backgrounds. And we need to like enter into each other's story in a little bit deeper way, because I think that's what's going to reconnect us. That's what's going to bring us back together. We're so disconnected. And so we just need some togetherness. And I think in doing so, we will find that we are unified, that we do agree on things more than we actually realize. I think that Columbine has taught me a valuable lesson to take my eyes, you know, off of myself and to really look around the world, to see the people who are hurting, to see the people who are in pain, to really enter in and assign ways to, to, to link arms with people so that they're not alone. I think that's so important. And to continue to just be a citizen of the world and a citizen of each other. Because I think we think, oh, I'm individual. I don't need anybody. I'm autonomous and I don't need anybody. But I actually think that that's kind of created the mess that we're in a little bit. And when we realize, oh, I am for you and you matter and you have value and you have worth and I want to help you find your potential. I think that's when we see beautiful things happen and unity happens and just naturally we see some of these issues kind of fade to the peripheral because we're making issues the first and foremost and we're making people issues. So we hate people because they believe different than you do, or we hate people because, well, you're not on my side. Well, what if people aren't the enemy? What if we come together to fight the issues as opposed to fighting each other? Thank you so much, Crystal. What do you think we can do to help our kids love life, value life, believe in life? I think our presence is what matters most. Is that yes, it's a scary world. 
There's a lot of bad things that happen. We can't control it, but I'm right here. I love you. I'm going to walk with you through all of it. You're not going to ever be alone in, in the midst of it. You know, I think presence matters when our kids are walking through scary things or even as a friend or as a, you know, presence matters. There will be things that I will do wrong, you know, as a mother, and there will be ways that I will fail them. But I think the important part is constantly coming back to my kids and saying, forgive me. Yeah, mommy doesn't have all the answers. Mommy isn't always right. Mommy isn't perfect, but I love you. And I'm here for you no matter what. I think just coming back with that reassuring message, it's going to be okay. I promise. I promise. And we get creative. I think for our kids, in order to see life as valuable, in order to recognize that, you know, not to live in fear and to show people compassion and, you know, some of these things is that we just simply, we live by example. We have conversations with our kids that we're not afraid or embarrassed to talk about anything. I often take my kids on little dates. And so like, I'll take my oldest, my 11 year old, and we'll go shopping. She'll start to tell me things about school and things about her friends and things she's thinking about, things she's worrying about. And we get to do it very naturally. We get to talk about the things that she's worried about in a very natural way. Or with my son, you know, who doesn't like shopping, we'll go, we'll go to the library and we'll look at books. And the conversation begins to happen really naturally. And so I believe those are the moments we choose to really enter in with our children as we take every opportunity as it comes and we give them a safe space to land. Like we have to hold space for our kids and say, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that is scary. Yeah, I can understand why you feel that way and you validate them and you assure them that it's normal to feel that way. And then you help kind of defer them on to a different, well, have you thought about this? Have you considered maybe thinking about this or doing this when you feel afraid and giving them those tools and empowering them to use them? But likewise, also just showing our kids that they too can make a difference in the world, that it's not just the adults who can go out and make change happen, but hey, you have a voice too. Write letters, you know, to the people that matter. Go and start a club at your school and initiate something to help people. Just putting the ball in there for and saying you are capable and you are able. And I think, you know, so often we kind of view kids as like, oh, you're an annoyance. No, when you get older, you can do it. And I tell my kids all the time, doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter because you can make a difference. And I, I think my kids really, they do believe that about themselves, you know? And I think we need to raise more young people within a house that feels safe and give them the space to do that so that we enable them to then go out into their spheres of influence into the world and create an impact, you know? But I think it always starts at home. I think it always starts at home. What we are teaching our kids, everything from values about how we look at the differences in others and how we love others and value other people who look different than us and believe different than us and vote different than us. Like it's important to really begin teaching that at home and not just expect the school to do that or some TV program to do that, but we as parents have the responsibility to teach those things. And I think it's just a refining, sanctifying process to become a parent. And so I welcome that challenge. I welcome that refinement because I just want to become a better version of myself every day, especially for my children, so that they can believe they can do the same and that they can become a better version of themselves and a better version of themselves for the world around them. I think that that's incredibly important. And, you know, even teaching them in terms of emotional wellness and mental health, when we talk about things, I always say, hey, 
just because you're feeling that way, again, it doesn't mean you're bad. It's shining a light on that area so that we can focus on it and we can find ways to kind of refine that and to sharpen it and to make it better. And then we can move on. And so I, I'm just trying to kind of paint a different picture for my kids, you know, and then go out and live in the world, not be afraid of it, but to live in it and make a difference for the time that we've been given. Thank you, Crystal. Do you think sometimes about what your life would be if you never experienced the shooting? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I think sometimes it's natural to probably think back and wonder, who would I be had Columbine not happened? Who would I be, you know, now at 40 years old if Columbine didn't happen when I was 16 years old? You know, all of these questions. But I really try to live my life forward thinking as opposed to dwelling on the past and dwelling on what ifs and what could have been. I really just want to go, okay, yes, this happened. This was a real thing. It wasn't some nightmare. It did happen to me. So now what am I going to do with that? It's a conscious choice to choose to live life and to choose hope and to choose joy and to choose like enjoying every moment with my family and my kids and savoring those things as opposed to looking back at the what ifs because it does no good. I can't change it. I can't fix it. I actually am very grateful for the person I am today. I am not defined by Columbine. But I am so much of who I am today because of what I went through 24 years ago. I am stronger and more resilient. I am hopeful and I have peace. I am full of joy and I have passion for life. I do love people more and kind and compassionate. I have more of a purpose and more of a, an outlook on life that I didn't have before. And for those things, I am incredibly grateful. I think I would have struggled for the rest of my life of Who am I? What do I want to do? That insecurity and that, you know, and this really made me confront some of the ugliest parts of myself, but some of the most beautiful places in myself too, because I have plumbed to such great darkness that I really recognize and appreciate and live for the hope and the light, like the gratefulness to live life today. Now, it hasn't always been easy, and I don't want to make it sound like, oh, this happened overnight. It's been a journey. It's taken a lot of work, and it's taken a lot of initiative. And is there a part of you feeling 16 forever? I do not feel like there's this arrested development where I feel like I'm 16 still. I mean, in some ways, I wish I could go back. And I was forced to grow up rather quickly. When you're 16 years old and you face the reality of your death, and I'm all of a sudden this public speaker and I'm doing all this stuff, I feel like I kind of fast forwarded through a lot of those growing years. Even when I was in college, I was constantly on the road traveling and speaking. And I feel like I missed out a lot on just being a kid and just getting into some mischief and being in college and all of those things. I wouldn't change it, but I do feel like some of those years were missed. But I do not feel like I'm just 16 forever. I feel like I'm just in a healthier place, but I can look back at my 16-year-old self and I can feel compassion and I can feel empathy and I can see, you know, I feel the pain. Oh, I'm so sorry you went through that. But I don't feel like I'm still living out of my 16-year-old self. I feel like... I feel like I'm a 40-year-old, <laughs> wrinkles and all. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. What do you think, in a nutshell, we can learn from Columbine? Well, I think that we have a lot of work to do as a society, as a culture, as a nation, as a world. There is 
total systemic change that has to happen in policies and law, but also in mental health and the way that we raise our children and the way that we relate to one another in society and what is in our social media and in our movies and in our video games and in our music. I mean, as I said, I've spoken often about kind of this this holistic problem. And I think when you boil it down to one thing, like that is just a band-aid on a deeper issue, like until we solve the other issue. And so it's really a whole like systemic change that has to happen academically. It has to happen on a family basis. It has to happen as a culture. It has to happen in politics. It has to, like, it just has to be all hands on deck. It's not a one size fits all solution. Thank you, Crystal. What would you say to a trauma survivor right now? Yeah, well, is it possible? And I wrote an open letter and it kind of, I spent a lot of time on it, really poured my heart and soul into it because there's so much I wanted to say and there's so much I wish people had said to me. And so I tried to really, sometimes I can communicate better when I am able to write. If I would be able to read this, I think it sums up the answer to that question. This was an open letter to all survivors. And really, I was writing it to survivors of mass shootings, but I think it can apply to anybody who's gone through something traumatic. Dear fellow survivor, 22 years ago, when I survived the shootings at Columbine High School, there were very few words or sentiments that could bring comfort or solace. That is still true today. Words fall significantly short. They feel small and trite. However, I feel compelled to at least try to convey some of the comfort I wish was shared with me. When Columbine happened, people would often ask why I shared my story. I would express how desperate I was to prevent mass shootings because I never wanted another person to experience the pain or suffering my friends, classmates, and my community did on April 20th, 1999. I am deeply sorry that I have failed you, that we have failed you. I am sorry tragedies like yours have become so commonplace. I wish I could erase the grief and sorrow that have now become a part of your story. This is not the way that it is supposed to be. I want you to know you are not alone. You are now a part of a club you never asked or wished to be a part of. In this club, you are known, you are seen, you are heard, and you are valued. Your story matters greatly. In this club, you are accepted and you belong. You are safe, safe to be you. In this club, you have permission and space to feel and process all of your emotions. We are not uncomfortable or scared by the intensity of those feelings because we have felt them too. In fact, your thoughts, feelings, and emotions are completely normal. They don't make you strange, broken, or weird. In this club, you get to heal at a pace that feels safe and healthy for you. There are no expectations to move faster or slower in your healing journey. Let your process take as long as it needs. Yet in this club, we will also support and encourage you to utilize the tools and resources at your disposal to face, navigate, and move through the trauma to find healing, strength, and purpose on the other side. Because you will find you are not just a survivor, but you are an overcomer. In this club, hope can become your reality too. Hope, you see, is a choice. One day, whether you believe it now or not, you will have the opportunity to make that choice. 
You may be numb with shock in the chaos of this moment. I know that though the immediate danger has passed, you no longer feel safe. Your innocence and security have been stolen. I know what it's like to continually replay the event over and over again in your head. I know the inability to shake the sights, the sounds, and the smells. I know the crippling guilt and shame. The unanswerable questions of why and the second guessing of your response. I know the nightmares that haunt your sleep. I know the loneliness that you feel even in a room full of people. I know what it feels like to be used and abused by the media. I know how overwhelming it is to experience every emotion and yet feel nothing at all. I know the tears you want to shed, but they run dry. I know the disbelief and confusion of staring at an ever-growing makeshift memorial. I know the grief that makes your soul ache. I know the weight of fear. I know the anger. I know you feel as if it might crush you at any moment. I know it feels impossible, but I promise this is not the end. Hope is patient. Hope will wait. And hope will bear you up and carry you steadily forward. Hope is a lifeline that can steady and anchor you against any storm. I know this because I chose hope and slowly, miraculously, things began to change in me. Fear was replaced with courage, anxiety with peace, bitterness with forgiveness, despair with joy, and negativity with gratitude. But hope is not found in a system or an institution. It can't be bought or sold or traded for. It's not in a government. It's laws, policies, or reform. If anything, we need heart reform. For me, hope is found in a savior and the person of Jesus Christ. For you, hope may be found elsewhere in anything higher than yourself. No matter where you find hope, you must be willing to look for it. Hope begins with us. And it ripples out into our homes, our places of work, our neighborhoods, and our communities. Hope grows and unfurls in us when we open ourselves to the possibility to live again, to see each moment and each breath as a precious gift. Hope is extended when we stop fighting against one another and begin to fight for one another. When we remember that each person we come in contact with has a unique story and is facing a battle, we offer grace, love, and honor. There is so much more I want to say to you, but I will end here, except to offer this. For those asking if it ever gets any easier, I say it does not, should not, ever get easier to witness death and violence. We cannot become desensitized to that. Instead, let us channel our emotions toward action, toward change, and toward hope. We are among those who have lived to see another day. We are warriors of hope. So refuse to give up and refuse to give in. Your friend, your sister in hope, and your fellow survivor, Crystal Woodman Miller. It's wonderful. So I believe it will be a perfect conclusion. But is there anything you want to add or any message you want to convey? I hope that in some way, maybe something that I shared throughout the interview would offer someone some 
just a little bit of hope, a little glimmer of hope for their own circumstance or their own situation to recognize that there is always reason to keep moving forward. And we always, our stories have the ability to make an incredible impact on this world if we so let them. Instead of letting them just drag us under and and cause defeat and hopelessness, that we can use our stories to become a platform to help others. And so I really want to encourage people with that message. I think we oftentimes compare our stories like, oh, my story isn't as good as that person. Oh, I didn't go through something like that. I can't. No one's going to listen to me. But the fact is, is that we need your voice. We need your story. We need what you bring, your gifts, your talents. We need what you bring to this world, and we need it to be a force for good. Thank you so much for listening to Columbine, them, and you, and me, and everybody. Take care, and you'll be hearing from us again very soon. Actually, next week will be our last episode for this podcast.